Welcome to Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. My name is Craig Martin, and I am a professor of law at Washburn University School of Law. This podcast seeks to explore and explain various perspectives on the different legal regimes that govern the use of force and armed conflict, what I loosely and collectively call the Laws of War. This is the 10th episode, and it is being released about five months after I first started thinking about and working on the podcast. It's been a learning process, but I want to thank all of you for coming along for the ride. So far, we are getting an average of between 400 to 500 listeners per episode, and the website has been accessed thousands of times from just under 100 countries. But I'd love to expand our listener base, so if you're finding the podcast enjoyable or helpful, please do spread the word to your friends, colleagues, or students. Our guest today is Professor Iliav Liblik of Tel Aviv University in Israel. He's the author of International Law and Civil Wars, Intervention and Consent, and co-author of Transnational Asymmetric Armed Conflict Under International Humanitarian Law. He has, of course, written widely on issues of use ad bellum, IHL, international human rights law, international law theory, and just war theory. He will, of course, be well known to the readers of blogs like Just Security, Egil Talk, and Opinio Juris, and of course to the Jib Jab crowd on Twitter, where he is very active. We will, as always, have a link to his formal profile page on our website. The focus of our discussion today is recent work Ilyev has done on the relatively underexplored relationship between international human rights law and the use of Balam regime. In an article just published in the European Journal of International Law entitled The Humanization of Yusad Bellum, Prospects and Perils, Iliav uses a general comment of the UN Human Rights Committee as the starting point for an analysis of whether and how violations of Yusad Bellum might also violate the right to life under the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, or the ICCPR, and indeed whether governments, in making Yusad Bellum decisions, do not also have to consider the human rights obligations to their own citizens and the people of the state against which force is being contemplated. Now, this examination moves from a doctrinal analysis through to a consideration of the theoretical implications and also employs just war theory and ethical lenses to make for a fascinating exploration. In our discussion, we grapple with all of these issues and also discuss how this thinking informs another chapter of Iliab's entitled Self-Defense Against Non-State Actors and the Myth of the Innocent State, in which we also debate some aspects of the unwilling or unable doctrine. So with that, let us get into the conversation. I bring you Professor Iliab Lieblich. Iliab Lieblich, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Um, thanks for having me. And I hope uh, I live up to the uh, previous guests, which were all fantastic. <laughs> I have no doubt. I mean, this is fascinating material that we're going to be discussing today. But before we get started, as okay. you know, I, I typically ask uh, guests to the podcast to share something about themselves that's a little strange or unusual oh. or that your colleagues probably don't know about you. Well, um, probably most of my colleagues would find it surprising that I think that if it was not uh, a lawyer or a legal academic, I would probably be a music critic. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm a huge music fan. I think I'm a walking encyclopedia of early 90s hip-hop. Wow, okay. So hip-hop <laughs> is the genre. Yeah, I probably know more, more about that than, than about international law. So I hope my students are not listening. <laughs> and, you know, reading music reviews or whatever, that's probably my favorite way of pro procrastinating. Second to Twitter, of course. That's the uh, all-time... <laughs> yes. <laughs> Best way to procrastinate. And so your number one hip-hop 
artists as far as you're concerned? Who's the best? Is there a best? In the past? Yeah, probably not. Uh, Outcast, a tribe called Quest. So that's it. Wow. I mean, it's not that strange or special, but probably unexpected. Yeah, yeah. No, interesting. Well, listen, we could talk about many things today as you've been doing work on a number of really interesting issues relating to the laws of war. But okay. I think we should spend the bulk of our time talking about this recent chapter on the humanization of use ad bellum. And am I right that this has not yet been published? Yeah, it's actually not a chapter. It's actually an article. And it's part of, a, hopefully, a symposium, the same symposium that Kevin John Heller has contributed to. And he was talking about uh, in previous uh, um, episodes. It's a symposium, hopefully, that will be published by EGIL about um, human rights and resort to force. It was organized by Dr. Kanda a while back. So, I see. So, yeah. And, uh, so it's, it hasn't been published yet. Hopefully it will. <laughs> but it's available on SSRN. Right. And we'll post a link to that on the, the podcast website. Yes. And so I've already said a little bit about the overarching argument in the introduction before you join. But in short, you're using the occasion of the Human Rights Committee's General Comment 36 which suggests that certain violations of the use ad bellum regime could also violate the inherent right to life uh, under the ICCPR as a way of exploring more deeply the assumptions and implications of the relationship between international human rights law and the use ad bellum regime. And as I understand it, you sort of bring just war theory and moral philosophy perspectives to bear on that analysis. So there's a lot to unpack here, and I think it might be easiest for our listeners if we begin with the basics. So maybe as a way of, of you know, working our way into this, you could begin by saying a little bit about the conventional or traditional understanding of the relationship between human rights law and use ad bellum, or maybe more precisely, the non-relationship between human rights law and the use ad bellum regime. Right. So I think uh, the usual way to look at it, at least in, in recent decades, is that war and the decision to go to war is basically a, an interstate uh, phenomenon, right? So when states decide to go to war against each other, when they resort to force against uh, each other, it's primarily an inter-sovereign issue, right? So the conventional view is that to the extent that the belligerent states uh, conform to use and bellow to IHL while they fight, right? So there is an, no issue here in terms of human rights law, right? right. So uh, human rights law only kicks in if there are violations of use and bellow, for instance, if you um, attack civilians uh, intentionally, but as long as killings doing war conform to, to IHL, the mere resort to force is not a human rights law issue. That is cabined in use ad bellum. Right. Right. So a state can be an aggressor, but the killings pursuant to that aggression, Killings, uh, even of, of lawful killings under IHL, of soldiers and of civilians caught as incidental collateral damage, these killings, as long as they conform to use in bellow, they are not uh, violations of human rights law, right? So, so that that's the conventional view, right? Right, and and it has proven to be uh, pretty stable in recent decades. Although we see a process in which human rights law affects how we interpret IHL. But it hasn't until uh, recently uh, entered the realm of the decision to resort to force itself against the enemy soldiers. Right. right. That, that is still uh, exhausted by IHL, or at least that, that, that's the conventional view. Right. Right. So there's been increasing controversy or debate about the relationship between 
human rights law and IHL and the extent to which human rights may or may not apply in, in the margins of IHL on the battlefield. But as it relates to USAD Balam, IHL, or uh, human rights law rather, had nothing to say. And, and there was really no relationship. But then the Human Rights Committee uh, issues General Comment 36, which suggests indeed that certain violations of USAD Balam may in fact violate the inherent right to life under the ICCPR. And you explore or you go, you work your way through an analysis of uh, General Comment 36, and you, you posit that there are sort of three pillars to the, the Human Rights Committee's position. So maybe we could begin by just you explaining what those three pillars are, and then we can work our way into sort of the more philosophical implications of this. Okay, so to begin with, um, for our listeners, so General Comment 36 is a general comment by the Human Rights Committee. It's a treaty body established uh, by the ICCPR, uh, the International Convention on uh, Civil and Political Rights. So it issues general comments about how it views that rights should be interpreted. These comments are not binding law as such, but they do either uh, presume to reflect uh, customary law or contribute to the development of customary law. And in general, they enjoy a lot of prestige. So we have to take seriously these uh, general comments. Right. And General Comment 36 deals with a lot of aspects rela relating to the right to life, but it says some, some very interesting things about the relations between uh, the right to life and IHL and USAID Bellum. So uh, paragraph 64 of the General Comment says that, um, first of all, human rights law applies during armed conflict, and killings that take place during armed conflicts uh, to the extent that they conform to IHL, they will generally not be violations of the right to life, right? And then paragraph 70 says something very interesting. Right? It says that uh, states uh, engage in acts of aggression, right? And violate uh, and deprive lives uh, in these acts, violate ipso facto article six of the covenant. So it means that while uh, killings that conform to IHL are generally not in violation of uh, the right to life. If these killings are a result of an act of aggression, they're ipso facto violations of the right to life, even if they conform to IHL. Right. right? So this means that if uh, state A uh, commits an act, act of aggression against state B and kills uh, soldiers in B's army and also incidentally kills civilians, but proportionally in accordance with IHL, this would still be an ipso facto violation of human rights law. And this is a dramatic statement that you find in the very last paragraph of uh, General Comment 36, which is something like 25 pages long. You have this paragraph, which actually requires a lot of theoretical uh, commitments and, a lot of, and raises a lot of dilemmas, both in, in law and in theory. And so the article seeks to kind of unpack it. Right. And before, before we go any further, perhaps you could just say a little bit about the, the language of Article 6 of the ICCPR and in particular, the role that the, the word arbitrary plays, right? because I think that that's an important uh, feature for understanding both how killings in, in accordance with IHL would not be a violation of Article 6 and why killings in acts of aggression could be a, a violation of Article 6. Right. So Article 6 generally... Uh says uh, Article 6 of the ICCPR, uh, that no one shall be arbitrarily deprived of uh, their life, right? And then the question is, what is arbitrarily? 
So the conventional view is that uh, as long as during armed conflict, killings are, um, are in conformity with use and bellow, then they're not arbitrary. That's the traditional view. It can be found in the ICJ's advisory opinion on nuclear weapons. So that's the conventional view. Right? So what Article 70 said is that killings that are uh, committed pursuant to an act of aggression are per se arbitrary. Right. Even if they conform with I- IHL. And that's a big uh, a change. Right? But that's not everything that, our, that Paragraph 70 does. Right. So as, as you mentioned, there are uh, what I ad- identify as three pillars of what I call the humanization of USAD Bellum. That's you know, subjecting uh, decisions to resort to force uh, to human rights law. So the first pillar, as I mentioned, is that uh, deprivations of life that take place during aggression are per se violations of the right to life. That's pillar one. But it becomes even more complex. Pillar two says that all states have the responsibility to protect lives and to oppose attacks on the right to life, including acts of aggression. So now we have an obligation as well, a responsibility under human rights law to positively respond or to protect individuals against acts of aggression, right? So that goes another uh, step forward. And just maybe if we could just pause there for a second, because I think what I found so fascinating about this is, as I understand your explanation of pillar number two, is that this is in effect imposing, and as you put it, a responsibility, not necessarily a complete obligation, but a responsibility of states to affirmatively exercise their discretion to exercise the right of self-defense in order to protect their own people and their right to life from the aggressor. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right? So it's their own people's right to life that is to be ensured by taking action to defend against aggression, right? which is right. Which is really fascinating. It's fascinating, and, and as I detail in the article, and we, we can get into that uh, more later, because usually, at least in modern international law, we think about the right to self-defense of states as something which is subject to the state's discretion. States can decide not to respond if they're attacked. Once we uh, insert the language of human rights, right, and specifically the positive duty to ensure and protect lives against aggression, we are slowly pushing uh, the right to self-defense towards the duty of self-defense. And in that sense, and as, as I detailed in the article, we might be at risk of kind of using human rights uh, rather to constrain force, to legitimate more force. Right. So pillar two, in this sense, can serve as a, an enabling function, and states can latch onto it to kind of explain why they should use force uh, rather than refrain from using force. And, and this is something uh, that we have to pay attention to. Right. And so there's more, right? So pillar three, and it's not, uh, these, are, these pillars are not defined as pillars in, in the general comment. That's my kind of uh, analysis. Right is that states that fail to take all reasonable measures to settle their international disputes by peaceful means might fall short of complying with their positive obligations to ensure the right to life. So now what what the uh, general comment is saying here is something also very dramatic, that states that don't uh, resolve their disputes peacefully or take reasonable measures to do so and find themselves in a war because of that might be liable uh, for violating the right to life or failing to ensure the right to life of their own soldiers and citizens by occasioning unnecessary harm to them. Right. Right. So think the, the extent of this uh, obligation and, and the meanings in political theory for that. Right. So 
these are the three pillars. Uh, aggression is an ipso facto deprivation of life. Uh, there's the responsibility to oppose aggression. And uh, if you don't take all reasonable measures to solve international disputes by peaceful means, you might violate your positive obligation to ensure the right to life of your own people. Right. And this is all in one short paragraph. <laughs> right. Right. Now, before we sort of dive into your own analysis of the underlying theoretical assumptions, some of the possible objections, and the implications of these three pillars, you also in the article go over some of the initial objections of some of, the, of some states, right? So NATO countries in particular registered objections, and you don't find these objections all that persuasive, but you nonetheless sort of run through them. I thought maybe we could just deal with that before we get into your analysis. Yeah. So I think, you know, after uh, hearing how we introduced these uh, three pillars, it's not surprising uh, that many states objected to them, which can also affect whether these pillars actually translate into positive law. But states, uh, usually, uh, most of them the states that uh, oppose or try to limit the influence of human rights law in use in Bello or in in, in national security at large, these states objected to paragraph 70 during the drafting of the general comment. And there are various objections. Some are less interesting uh, than the others. I think, uh, so, so one interesting objection was, well, the right to life cannot apply to uh, aggression because there's no extraterritorial application of human rights law. Right. That's, uh, unsurprisingly, uh, th that was a, um, an objection phrased by the U.S. And that fits with the U.S.'s overall position about the non-extraterritorial extraterritorial application of international human rights law. So, but that, that objection I find not convincing because it was already addressed in many forums. And nowadays it's pretty widely accepted that there is extraterritorial application of human rights law. Now, the interesting question concerning aggression in this context is that the decision to resort to force usually takes place while the um, potential victims are not under your physical control in any way. Right. Right. So to the extent that you need physical control for extraterritorial applications of human rights to kick in, that would not exist during the decision stage of uh, resort to force. But also here, that, that I find not entirely convincing because I think the emerging standard is that acts that produce reasonably foreseeable and direct effects outside of your territory trigger jurisdiction for the um, purpose of extraterritorial application of human rights law. But I don't find that um, too convincing. There are other threshold objections, uh, mainly by the U.S., and I think the most interesting of these is kind of an extension of the Lex Specialis argument. So as most of your listeners know, the, the U.S. argues that human rights law doesn't apply during armed conflicts because use in bello or IHL is the Lex Specialis, right? It's the law specifically tailored to regulate situations of armed conflicts and therefore human rights law doesn't exist. Right. The U.S. actually argued that use ad bellum is the Lex Specialis for decisions to resort to force. And therefore, human rights law cannot apply to these decisions. And that I find you know, entirely off target because the Lex Specialis analysis only kicks in when you have relations of conflict. Right. So 
relations of conflict between the prohibition and of, of aggression and the, the right to life, right? They, they're mutually reinforcing. Right. So, so what uh, a pillar one of uh, the General Common uh, 70 does is actually adding another layer of illegality or responsibility to something which is already unlawful. Right. right? It doesn't add something which is constraining um, and which is, you know, in, in some kind of a basic a conflict with Yusuf Bellum. It reinforces Yusuf Bellum. So I, I, I don't find this. There's another um, objection that, you know, the, the, the UN Security Council is the only body that should deal with aggression. But there's no basis in the UN Charter for that. And also we know that the ICC deals with aggression. So, so I think the, the threshold um, objections are not, probably that's not the end of the story. Right. Okay, so let's let's sort of drill into some of your uh, sort of deeper analysis of some of the questions that arise, right? So I mean, it, it strikes me that pillar one is the more robust aspect of the three pillars, right? It's saying that an act of aggression is ipso facto a violation of the right to life. And yet this by itself raises a host of questions, right? So for example, why, I mean, just to preface what I'm about to say, I mean, listeners will recall that an act of aggression is a, a particularly grave uh, violation of the prohibition on the use of force. It's not just simply any use of force in violation of Article 2.4 of the Charter. It's a, it has a particular gravity threshold. And so this raises the question that, well, why only acts of aggression if we're saying that violations of the Usad Bellum regime would also violate the right to life? of those people killed in the use of force that's in violation of use at Balaam, why are we limiting it to only acts of aggression? Right, so this is an interesting question, and there's no answers in the text itself. I, I would think, you know, th there are several ex possible explanations for this. First of all, you're absolutely correct that, you know, so, so there are other violations of the prohibition on the use of force, for instance, what the Nicaragua judgment calls less grave uses of, of force, frontier incidents, uh, Etc., which do not fall into the definition of aggression, and these also, you know, kill people wrongfully. Right. But it's still not registered as a violation of the right of the right to life, at least uh, according to Pillar One here. I think uh, I think the uh, the text of the comment refers specifically to aggression, mainly or perhaps perhaps mainly to exclude the cases of unilateral humanitarian intervention. So I know Kevin John Heller was here, and he, he was arguing that humanitarian intervention is an act of aggression. I don't know if these, uh, this is the mainstream view. I think probably this is one of the reasons why um, the comment refers only to aggression. So if you have an, an act of humanitarian intervention, uh, a genuine humanitarian intervention, I know that Kevin says it doesn't exist, <laughs> but let's assume uh, for the sake of discussion. So we might have a violation of of the prohibition of the uh, use of force, but we can't really say that you know the killings of the soldiers that committed atrocities are violations of their right to life, right? Because these killings are still defensive in terms of other defense. They're still defensive in relation to the people who are in, in the receiving end of the, these atrocities. So I think this is maybe one reason uh, why um, it's limited to aggression. You know, a more uh, cynical or critical view is that the committee referred to aggression because the threshold to aggression is so high that it kind of made sure that there are not going to be actual cases 
in which uh, this definition will uh, make a difference. I don't think this is the, the case, but th th that's a, a critique that can be uh, leveled. But I think probably the best Probably the, the best explanation is that the committee didn't want to impose a too stringent uh, standard to leave kind of some space for politics and not to allow human rights law to dominate the entire discussion of, on the use of force. And uh, for those of you who, who read the, the article, you would see that I'm not celebrating the extension of human rights law into this area. I think it's a good thing, but I think we also should be aware of human rights laws limitation. Right. Right. So, so I think maybe that's also something that the committee is doing here. And so before perhaps we go on to sort of look at, at some of the implications or objections, your own objections, or perhaps objections isn't the right word, but your, your questions regarding mm -hmm. pillars two and three, this might be a good opportunity to sort of start bringing in some of the philosophical analysis and and how, in particular, you bring sort of just war theory and some of the moral, philosophical, theoretical takes on war to inform your analysis of the humanization of you, said Bellum. Okay, so in general, the, the methodology of this paper is to ask um, the question that I think Koskinyemi phrased as, what do we need to believe in order to uh, accept some proposition? I'm trying to explore the underlying theoretical commitments that are required of us in order to accept the three pillars of GC 36, right? So, so that's my way to approach it because I think, you know, in order to, to make our decisions or to have an opinion of whether this is a good or bad thing, we, we have to understand, you know, the values it reflects, right, and its basic assumptions and whether they're defendable or not. And what I find interesting is that the idea, the basic ideas uh, reflected in General Common 36 actually conform to a much wider discussion in recent years on just war theory. So at least until uh, since the 1970s with Michael Walter's seminar, seminal uh, Just and Unjust War, so the conventional thinking about uh, war was that war was something special, right? That relations of war are between states, and states are these unique entities. They, they uh, defend the common life. They have uh, powers to use force that are not available to individuals. And, then, and the basic relation in war is a uh, relation between uh, states, right? And all soldiers are uh, morally equal um, because the decision to resort to force is a state decision, right? And under this point of view, it's very hard to conceive soldiers as uh, victims, right? Because soldiers are equal. They are thrown into the situation of war without real responsibility to, to, for, for the situation. And they kind of battle each other uh, for their own survival. So neither the aggressors nor the defenders soldiers can be viewed as victims. Right? So, so that's I think the view that was, has been uh, predominant in the last uh, several decades, and I think it fits nicely with the idea that you said bellum and human rights law are two different uh, spheres, right? Right, because you said bellum deals with uh, state rights, and all combatants are equal, and we can't see them as victims. 
But what we have since the 90s, we have uh, development in, in the ethics of war in which, uh, well, we like to label them as revisionist just war uh, theorists, argue that no, so uh, relations during war are just, you know, relations between groups of people and they're subject to the same morality uh, of everyday life. You know, states are just, you know, groups, large groups of people. They're not anything mythological that have transcendental rights. And therefore, we can analyze relations and decisions to go to war on the basis of regular morality. And therefore, uh, soldiers that find themselves on the defending end and during war remain innocent victims. And if they're innocent victims, that means that when they're killed, their right to life is violated. So the development in General Comment 36 actually reflects um, this revisionist thinking about just war theory. And and, and yeah, and, and it's, I think it's not surprising that this has been happening in recent years because we see some scholarship by international lawyers that starts to engage with this thinking, right? And challenging uh, the idea of war as something that is between states. And I, I mentioned uh, many of these writers in, in the article itself. So much of, uh, of the article kind of engages revisionist just war theory and, and the traditional view and tries to see how these pillars fit with these developments in, in the thought about the ethics of war. Right. So, I mean, from that perspective, even pillar one is only moving, it's only one small step in this direction, because as we just talked about, it's only recognizing those killed through acts of aggression as being right. innocent victims. So those who are killed in in uses of force that are violations of the Usad Bellum regime, but don't rise to the level of an act of aggression, are still nonetheless considered to be legitimate, valid, so long as those killings were in accordance with IHL. Well, I mean, it depends, because uh, paragraph 64 of General Commentary 6, 6 uh, says that killings that conform to Usad Bellum are in general not arbitrary, so they leave some interpretive space to say, well, you know, uh, even violations of the prohibition on the use of force that don't amount to aggression uh, are also violations of, of the right to life. But but I agree that it, this is it doesn't go the entire way right. um, by by only uh, mentioning aggression explicitly. But once we you know once we insert this kind of revisionist thinking into pillar one, there are a lot of very interesting questions, right? Because what is a non-arbitrary killing? Uh, under Article 6. Usually we think that uh, non-arbitrary killings are those that are pro proportionate or and necessary um, in self-defense against an imminent threat or uh, the defense of others, right? Right. If this is true, can we really say that all killings that take place during aggression are necessarily non-arbitrary, are necessarily arbitrary? I mean, you can think of a situation in which state A is the aggressor, right? But state B while defending itself, is targeting its, uh, state A civilians or causing harm to civilian infrastructure. So we can have a situation in which the aggressor is defending itself against an arbitrary attack, perhaps by the other party. Right. So, so, it, so, so pillar one really has to be broken down into a very detailed analysis of of, of the scenarios that take place during uh, uh, the conflicts. So I try to argue that, you know, so maybe pillar one should be uh, understood to apply only to killings that are specifically occur in furtherance of the aggressive cause and not in a situation in which the aggressor defends its own civilian, for instance. Right. 
from a response by the defender. Right. Right. So. But this, again, it raises this question of why it is that, that some violations of USAD Bellum would not constitute a violation of, of Article 6 of the ICCPR. For instance, where the defending, you know, the forces of the defending state, as you say, are engaging in uses of force that are part of the exercise of the right of self-defense, but may not satisfy the principle of necessity or proportionality under USAD Bellum, may be entirely compliant with IHL, but may not satisfy the, the principle of necessity or proportionality under USAD Bellum. Exactly. So it's a violation of the USAD Bellum regime, but nonetheless, we're going to say, well, but that's not an arbitrary killing. Right. I mean, so we touched upon that when we asked why is it that GC36 refers only to, to aggression. Right. And I agree with you that it raises all of these questions. And, and again, you know, the, the implications of saying that in a certain uh, case, all of the killings or ipso facto violations of Article 6, it has massive consequences in law. It means that all of the soldiers killed during the, this war, civilians harmed, can now uh, level a human rights law claim against the, the, the state, right? So I think maybe uh, the Human Rights Committee wanted to really make sure that this uh, consequence will uh, take place only in situations when we have a clear-cut right. act of aggression, right? So, so that, that, that can be right, one uh, pragmatic explanation, but I agree with you that in normative terms, if we take seriously this type of thinking, it has to apply to any violation of uh, the law and the use of force, not only aggression. Right. So as you pointed out, uh, under Pillar 1, what we're really talking about are the victims and so if it's, you know, country A is engaging in aggression against country B, it's the, the soldiers and the civilians in country B that have some claim, you know, their estates have some mm -hmm. claim uh, for a violation of the right to life of the victims in country B. But under pillars two and three, we're talking about the soldiers or civilians within country A. Okay. It may not involve an act of aggression at all, but just... Country A is involved in a conflict with country B, and it's the citizens of country A that may have a claim against their own state, their own government, for failing to ensure their right to life. And so let's explore some of the implications of pillars two and three. Right. So pillar two, I think, is pretty dramatic in terms of how it might uh, change how we think about uh, uh, the law and the use of force. Right, so uh, the pillar uh, uh, reminds all states of the responsibility uh, to protect lives and to oppose uh, attacks on the right to life, including acts of aggression, et cetera, et cetera. Right, so, so pillar two is part of a positive requirement to ensure human rights, right? Now, so the, the key implication here is, as you said, that so we might have a scenario in which an individual will have a claim right against its own state their own state for an, uh, in the sense that it would, would require that state to, to respond forcibly to, to, this, to, to any type of threat or attack, right? And that I think is pretty dramatic in the sense that, first of all, it kind of depoliticizes the decision on resort to force because the situation as, is, as of now is usually understood is that states can waive their right to self-defense in, in a particular situation if they think, you know, that there are political um, reasons not to engage in self-defense, or if they think they are probably going to lose in the long run. Right. Uh, f uh, and, and I give uh, examples in, in the, the article itself. So now we will have uh, 
supposedly human rights law kicking in, and states would have to justify why they haven't responded to a certain attack. Right. And here I see a real uh, potential of what I call, others have, have labeled this as, as the securitization of human rights law, in which human rights are suddenly from a you know, supposedly benevolent force constraining state power can be used to impose or to require or to legitimate wider uses of force, which is kind of counterintuitive when we think about human rights law, but human rights law does this, right? Right. So in this sense, uh, here we have a potential of expansion. But again, in terms of, you know, ethical uh, or theoretical considerations, I think it makes sense, right? If states have an obligation to protect the lives of people under their jurisdiction, it doesn't really matter if the attack is, you know, a criminal attack uh, by people and, you know, by someone on, in the street or uh, an attack emanating from a neighboring state, right? And, and here again, we have this revisionist just war thinking that, you know, interstate relations are not differently, morally different, different from relations between individuals uh, in day-to-day life, right? So, so again, we have on the one hand, I think a good ethical, um, ethical reasons to recognize Pillar 2, but on the other hand, we have this unease that we're actually kind of imposing a duty to respond, but we might want states to exercise restraint and not necessarily respond to any attack, right? And so this is sort of, I mean, it's consistent with what we saw just politically within the context of, for example, the global war on terror, right? There were claims within the United States that, you know, the government uh, had to do whatever it takes to save American lives, that, that its highest calling was to protect American lives. And so this sort of uh, is consistent with that intuition. But then Pillar 3 sort of goes in the opposite direction, right? So that now the requirement to protect and ensure uh, the right to life may mean that engaging in uses of force, even if they are arguably defensive, if they're unnecessary and they unnecessarily expose their citizens to to risks that result in, in the loss of life, that this is going in the opposite direction. While Pillar 2 imposes an obligation to, potentially or a responsibility to at least think seriously about using force to protect citizens' lives, Pillar 3 is suggesting that if you're engaging in uses of force unnecessarily, then that too may constitute a violation of the right to life. Right. So, so first, I want, I want to stress what you said in, in the end about Pillar 2. So again, we see this pendulum in GC36. So Pillar 2 is phrased as a responsibility. Right. Right. It's a positive duty, right? So it requires only taking uh, reasonable measures and it shouldn't impose disproportionate uh, burdens. So there is ample space for politics here. It's not an absolute duty. But it still changes the situation because if states have now, a, let's say, unfettered discretion not to respond to, to, to a certain threat, so now they would have to kind of justify uh, what they're, they're doing. And, and regarding Pillar 3, whether it imposes the opposite or not, it depends uh, on how we understand Pillar 3. Does Pillar 3 require states to try to resolve a dispute peacefully, even if they have been attacked? Or does it only apply in general to situations that can maybe develop in the future into attacks? Uh, there's a lot of you know, gray areas here. 
in my analysis of the pillar, it seems to me the most reasonable interpretation is that pillar three doesn't impose a duty uh, on states uh, while they're under attack to kind of try to negotiate before responding, right? Uh, that would be too removed from Yusad Bellum itself. Right. And I think it would be contradictory that on the one hand, Yusad Bellum allows states to defend themselves in that, such a situation without ca- calling for negotiations and talking about an ongoing attack. And on the other hand, if you have human rights law phrasing the same action lawful under Yusad Bellum as a violation of the right to life of the state's own defending soldiers, that seems to me too convoluted. Right. So I think basically what Pillar 3 tries to do is to say that if you occasion unnecessary harm to your citizens and your soldiers by basically sending them to an unnecessary war, right, so you would be responsible for uh, failure to ensure their right to life. But I think it's intuitive on a very basic level, but once we try to break it down and apply that to concrete situations, it's very, situation is very difficult. Right. Right. So. To what extent does this obligation go? Uh, should states just, you know, give up on their basic interests in order not to occasion harm to their soldiers? Or so this pillar really has uh, requires a lot of uh, unpacking, now, which I don't try to do everything in this article. This article kind of tries to raise the questions and maybe highlight the uh, directions for further research and analysis. But I, these are huge questions, of course. Right. Right. And so two other questions that you raise in the article and you would, you analyze to some extent, and you've already touched on in our discussion, but I thought it would be good to sort of circle back to them, is you suggest that one of the, or two of the possible dangers or risks associated with this humanization of use ad bellum, of applying human rights to use ad bellum violations, is that you first you securitize human rights and you depoliticize war. And you've, you've spoken a little bit about what securitization of human rights means, but perhaps you could expand on that and explain a little bit more in detail what you mean by the depoliticization of war. Okay, so I think you mentioned the global war, so-called war on terror. So the securitization of human rights is the process in which the language of human rights is justified in order to is used in order to justify legitimate state power, power rather than constraining state power. So, for instance, uh, arguments like, well, you have to use uh, mass surveillance in order to defend rights against uh, terrorists. Right. Or we have to restrict immigration because uh, refugees, uh, I don't know, from Syria, from other uh, areas might be related to ISIS, and we need to protect the human rights of our people. Right? So the use of human rights language for for expansive security measures, right? And there's a, been a lot of very interesting work about the securitization of, of human rights in recent years. And so the argument is that because Pillar 2 requires some kind of a positive obligation or responsibility, it really ties in neatly into this securitization discourse because now states can argue, well, you know, we're responding because uh, we have to fulfill our human rights duties. Right. right? It's another tool of legitimacy for uh, resort to force. Right. And when I say uh, depoliticization, it, it, this kind of comes with the territory because human rights, as, as, as we know, are very uh, closely tied to natural law. 
and are afraid of, you know, basic fundamental rights attached to the individuals, to individuals. And states can argue, well, you know, the decision to protect human rights is a natural duty. It's not a political duty. It can't be contested in political terms. It's an absolute duty that we have, right? And we know that uh, depoliticization is a very effective tool in order to kind of push certain policies outside of kind of rational critique or outside of uh, the public discourse or to, to kind of conceal other options that we have to address the problem. And, and this is a, a real potential problem that we have once we get human rights law into this discourse, right? And, and this kind of concern hovers above my analysis, right? But I kind of, I, I know it's not very common, but I try to look at, at the problem simultaneously from an ethical perspective and also from a critical perspective. Right. So kind of I use uh, ethics to think about, you know, the ideal theory, the what would be normatively ideal. And I try to kind of use the critical uh, point of view to kind of, you know, make adjustments to, to the potential non-ideal circumstances when law meets reality, right? So, so yeah, so that, that's securitization and depolitization of resorts to force. And as you say, you don't try to solve all of the problems or questions raised by GC36. But at the end of the day, I, I get the impression from the article that you view this as a, as a positive development. And that while you raise some of these concerns, you're at the end of the day sort of suggesting that this move by the Human Rights Committee is to be welcomed. Would that be correct? Yeah, I think so. Because I think, you know, all of these critiques notwithstanding, if we exclude, you know, killings that are lawful under use in bello, killings of defending soldiers and incidental harm to, proportional incidental harm to uh, uh, civilians of the defending party, if we ex exclude that from human rights law, so we create a situation which is close to rightlessness. We have killings that we think they're wrongful, right? These are defending soldiers. These are innocent civilians of the defending party. And just because their killings are lawful under use in Bello doesn't really solve this wrongfulness, right? The wrongfulness persists. And, and I think that law should try to internalize situation of wrongfulness. Right. Right. There, there has to be some recourse to these people. Right. right. Some kind of remedy, some kind of recognition in law that their killing is wrongful. And I think GC36 um, provides this uh, platform. Because the crime of aggression is not enough. The crime of aggression uh, is still not understood in a, in a manner that can give an individual claim right in front of a human rights body, right? So, so, so I think it's a positive development, but we shouldn't celebrate it uncritically. We have to be aware of, of the risks right. and try to see how maybe we can mitigate these risks through the interpretation of the general comment. And I think uh, the Human Rights Committee does a pretty good job in a sense of kind of leaving space for politics in its language of, of the different pillars. Right. Well, you know, we were hoping to leave a few minutes to talk about this other uh, chapter of yours, which I think extends some of these ideas of both right. considering the rights of individuals in, in armed conflict and in considerations of use ad bellum issues. 
uh, and also brings to bear sort of this revisionist just war theory to bear on the thinking. But this is this uh, chapter, the myth of the innocent state. And we're not going to have much time to talk about it, but I think we have just a few minutes. And then part of your argument in a nutshell is that the current objections to the unwilling or unable doctrine, this doctrine that justifies the use of force against non-state actors in states that are unwilling or unable to take action to prevent the non-state actors from engaging in armed attacks against the, the target state, is that these objections to the unwilling or unable doctrine sort of privilege state sovereignty of the innocent, non-capable state over the human rights of the individuals in the target or defending state. Right. And so this really does, I think, follow on from the thinking that you've uh, articulated in, in talking about the humanization of use ad bellum. But I guess in reading that chapter, and we'll have to have you back to, to talk more about this, but two questions I wanted to, to raise in the time that we have remaining is that the first question was that your argument that, and just to perhaps summarize what I understood your argument to be, is that the objection to the unwilling or unable doctrine is, is suggesting that the sovereignty of the territorial state in which the non-state actor is, is operating that is unable to deal with it, with that threat. Mm -hmm. that its sovereignty is somehow given greater weight than the right to life and the, the human rights of the people who are being threatened by the non-state actor in the target state. And you actually use sort of a domestic analogy where, you know, if, if someone is committing a, a crime, a violent crime, and they happen to be on someone else's property, that preventing an exercise of self-defense against that person just because to do so would be to trespass and to commit some violation of the property rights of the person whose lawn they're on right. would be to privilege property rights over the human right to life. But I guess in the international realm, what, what struck me is that what this doesn't sufficiently consider, or I guess the question I have is, does it, does it sufficiently consider the rights to life and the human rights of the people who are in the territorial state? Right. I mean, because it is almost impossible to point to uh, an unwilling or unable doctrine scenario where the attacks on non-state actors don't end up also killing civilians in the territorial state. Right. And so where do their rights come into the equation? Well, of course, I, I, I mean, my argument is rather limited. It's the, the argument that when a state is unable, then it's not at fault, and therefore there cannot be a right of self-defense on its territory. My argument is that that specific objection to unwilling or unable is not convincing because it privileges fictitious anthropomorphic state rights over the rights of real people. But I don't think at any point I argue that that's where the story ends, of course. So you might have a right to self-defense against a non-state actor, but if your response will cause disproportionate harm to civilians on the other uh, side, so of course your response will be unlawful. Uh, so it's two different uh, levels of argument. But, but even if it's proportionate, even if the act of the, the target state, mm -hmm. the target state being the defending state, the state that's threatened by the non-state actor, even if its actions were proportionate in IHL terms, or even potentially proportionate under, under USAD Bellum terms, if the territorial state against which it was using force was in fact the, the aggressor, so to speak, if you could in fact attribute the actions of the non-state actor to that state, and therefore the, the use of force against 
the non-state actor in that state would be proportionate. But nonetheless, there's collateral damage right, against civilians. So you really, it strikes me that the human rights, the individual rights of the people within the territorial state who are not part of the non-state actor group are, are somehow being discounted or ignored in this analysis. I mean, it's not... But how is that different from self-defense against a state? Against a state, It still can... Well, the difference here is that because, of course, I mean, the objection to the unwilling or unable doctrine is that the state, the territorial state, I mean, the whole point that you're making is that, look, fault shouldn't really be the issue because, you know, you're, you're really just talking about some abstract notion of sovereignty that's being violated when you're using force against a non-state actor. But to me, I, I don't know that you can just dismiss fault so easily because it's not just some abstract notion of sovereignty that's being violated. You're actually killing people in the territorial state who are not associated with a non-state actor. I mean, that's I mean, yes, I, I would concede that if you could have some scenario where you're just taking out the non-state actors within the territory of the, of the territorial state, and there's no harm to anything but some notion of territorial integrity, maybe I would buy your argument. But, but that's almost never the case, right? There's always going to be collateral damage. But yeah, but I, I think I... If I understand um, your objection correctly, it seems that you imply that in regular interstate self-defense, we might have collateral damage on the attacker side, but these uh, civilians belong to the attacking state. So, so somehow it's more legitimate to cause collateral damage to them than to situation in which a threat emanates from a non-state actor, which is not part of their body politic. But that surely is the case, right? I mean, we accept... I, I don't know, because I don't think that the premise of incidental harm to civilians has anything to do with the responsibility of these civilians, for better or for worse. It doesn't matter, you know, if these civilians belong to the state party, they might be tourists, it doesn't, the, the notion of incidental harm, I think, is oblivious to questions of any type of responsibility or belonging of the civilians. Otherwise, it would be dangerous because then we could say, well, if they belong to, you know, this horrible regime, then they, they might be responsible to what this regime is doing. So, so maybe we should discount them in the proportionality analysis. So I don't think I agree with that view, but I definitely agree with you that in the vast majority of situations in which you would have transnational defense, uh, or at least in, very, uh, in many of these situations, the response would be disproportionate. But that does not uh, negate the existence of the right to self-defense, but just curtails it because it would be disproportionate in, in a certain instance. So, I mean, we could dive much deeper into this, but the other, the second objection to just to flag it is that, and again, it goes to this issue of fault because, you know, as I, I've argued in my own article on unwilling or unable doctor. Yeah, great article. Part of my argument in that was that there should be no unable, right? This idea that, that you can use force against a country that is merely unable to deal with a threat is not legitimate because if the target state is complying with its obligations and has requested consent to use force against the non-state actor within the territorial state, which is unable to deal with that threat, it's only when the unable territorial state refuses consent unreasonably in the face of overwhelming evidence provided by the target state, 
well, then it becomes unwilling and it's moved down the spectrum towards being, mm -hmm. you know, the acts of the NSA, the non-state actor can be actually attributed to it. And therefore, the use of force against that state as an exercise of self-defense starts to come within the scope of the ICJ's Nicaragua standard for its being substantially involved in the actions of the non-state actor. And so it strikes me that this idea that fault shouldn't have anything to play, any role to play, doesn't make sense because if the target state is actually reasonably asking for consent, it's only when the consent is denied. And, and then there is some fault. Yeah, so, so you actually say, well, once there, there are not going to be situations in which, in which a state is, is really innocent because once you request consent and, and it's denied, so there is fault. I think it's a, it's a great point. But what I was wondering, you know, with reading the article and talking to you about this is, is this really the case that denial of consent is fault, creates fault? Uh, because I can think of many situations in which there would be uh, kind of this opposite coercion on states not to consent. So you would have to kind of show that the non-consent is not based on coercion, right? Coercion by who? Uh, uh, regional political actors, right. by non-state actors themselves uh, in the territory. I, I mean, the, I, I mean the, the most uh, concrete example they can think of is Lebanon, right? So with uh, Hezbollah and the, on the territory of Lebanon. Uh, so obviously, Lebanon will never consent to Israeli operations in, in, in Lebanon. But I don't know if it could consent. Right. You know, considering the power relations within Lebanon and, and between Lebanon and other regional powers. Right. Right. Or could Syria consent to the U.S. operations on its territory without getting into trouble with uh, Iran or Russia? So I agree in terms of, of Syria. I think it's a very compelling argument, but you would have to also show that the non-consent itself is not a product of coercion, right? That it's kind of arbitrary. It's interesting. But then... Yeah, well, I think it's a great point. Yeah, no, that's an interesting point. Although you could argue that, yeah, I mean, it, it may be that they have uh, withheld consent as a result of coercion or pressure. But I think that that just leads to the, the argument that, yes, and therefore their substantial involvement and support for the non-state actor is a result of that coercion. But nonetheless, they the acts of the non-state actor can, in fact, be attributed to them, and they therefore have to accept the legitimacy of the use of force against the state for the acts of the non-state actor. But this, this idea that you can use force, I, mean, I, I guess my, my primary objection is this idea that you can use force against a state for no other reason than it is unable to deal with the threat, because that suggests that you have not actually taken the step of providing the evidence of, of the threat and requesting consent to deal with it yourself, right? And that, that it's, then really you're, you're entitled to use force against the non-state actor within that unable territory and cause harm and potentially kill uh, citizens of that territorial state independent of the non-state actor. And it strikes me that that, that would trigger issues of violation of the right to life. Okay, I, I don't think I have an issue with uh, your general approach. Uh, my article is uh, that chapter is not an argument for an expansive understanding of the unwilling or un unable uh, doctrine, but it's more um, questioning the centrality of the argument that state fault at the end of the day is kind of the central barrier 
against uh, transnational defense. I think uh, there, it has to be substantiated uh, theoretically way more than it's being done uh, today. But I might agree with you, you know, that all things considered, because uh, transnational defense uh, usually results in, you know, unjust uh, uh, killings or just, uh, you know, or is uh, manipulated or abused. Maybe the, you know, doctrine should prohibit it. But I think, you know, it has to do so for convincing reasons and not for reasons that kind of, I think, put, you know, state sovereignty or its anthropomorphic version on a very high plateau. Right. Well, listen, we'll have to have you back to to duke out the unwilling or unable doctrine. But you're right. You're quite right. I think that you're... (laughs) You know, this chapter is very much consistent with the ideas that you, you have in the, the humanization of Yusef Balam and, and sort of focusing right. on the importance of taking human rights and individual rights seriously in considering issues of, of use of force. So listen, I've taken more of your time than I asked. So thank you so much uh, for doing this. But before I let you go, um, as you know, I'm going to ask you to recommend three books or articles or pieces of writing that you think are important in this area? Yeah, actually, you know, I was thinking there are so many, uh, a lot of good scholarship uh, nowadays, but, you know, so, but, but I had to kind of uh, find three. So, and, and these are all relate to the themes that we explored uh, when discussing the humanization of, of Yusad Bell, and I think can provide good entry points. So my first book is by Helen Froh, who's actually not a lawyer. She's a professor of ethics at uh, Stockholm University. And the book is The Ethics of War and Peace and Introduction. That's a great entry point for anybody who wants to understand current debates on uh, the ethics of war. Orthodoxy, revisionism, innocent threats, all of these uh, nice things. So I really recommend it. It's very easy to read. It's very well organized. It has uh, reading recommendations. So that, that's one of them. Uh, the other is a 2018 book by Tom Dannenbaum from uh, Tufts. Uh, the Crime of Aggression, Humanity, and the Soldier. Uh, so th- this book is a really interesting take about the crime of aggression. And the basic argument is that we have to understand aggression as a crime against individuals and not against uh, states. And Dannenbaum develops, develops this idea in a very interesting way. And by the way, I've written a review about this book at Agile if, if somebody wants to kind of see uh, um, the gist of it. The third book is Adil Haq's uh, Law and Morality at War from 2017. Uh, you, uh, Adil was your guest in one of the first uh, episodes. And, and this book really uh, t- takes the cutting edge debate in the ethics of war, some of them we touched upon in the discussion, and rigorously applies them to doctrine. And I think in, in, in this sense, this book is uh, outstanding because uh, it really, a lot of people are either lawyers or philosophers. Right. And this book really merges them in a very kind of rigorous and knowledgeable way. So I highly recommend it. And yeah, that, that's only three. I have more of us. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, that's wonderful. Thanks you so much. Right. And, and thanks for spending time with us. And uh, as I mentioned, we'll have uh, links to all the materials we talked about on the, on the website for our listeners. So, Aliyah, thank you again. We'll have to have you back. Thanks for having me. And looking forward doing it again. Thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. You can find links to the material discussed today on our website at jibjabpodcast.com. 
And if you have any comments, feedback, suggestions, please do send us an email. Our contact info is also on the website. And if you're enjoying the podcast or finding it helpful, please do spread the word. Share it on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, wherever you post your social media, and tell your friends, colleagues, or students about it. And please do follow us on Twitter at at JibJabPodcast for updates on coming episodes and other insights. This podcast is produced and edited by me, Craig Martin. The music is by Dream Machine and is used on a Creative Commons license. Until next time, stay safe.